Welcome to the Adventure Together podcast. Well, welcome to today's Adventure Together podcast, interviewing key leaders uh, across the UK and asking them uh, to share some of the leadership keys that they are finding helpful in this time of unlocking. And today we have my friend, uh, John Stevens, who leads the FIEC, the National Director of FIEC, which I think is some 600 plus churches, isn't it, John? Right. Yeah, we're about 635 churches now. 635, there you are, actual number. Um, I'd love to start just asking you personally, how's lockdown been for you? And uh, what are the sort of things you've heard back from the churches that you're looking after in terms of the pluses, but also some of the challenges that they're living with? Thanks so much. Obviously, I lead the FIEC. I'm also a pastor of a local church in Market Harbour, the town I live in, a town of about 25,000 people. We've got a church of about 100 people that we planted 10 years ago. Um, and I've got a family, um, four kids. The oldest just went to university and three are at home. So lockdown has been a mixture of coping with children who are at home from school. Church, we meet in a school in a school hall and we weren't able to meet there for the period of lockdown. So effectively, we lost our building. And for most of the time, we were unable to meet in our building physically. So all of our services were online streamed. So I was preaching every other week in an online streaming format. So speaking to nothing but a camera and a friend. Um, uh, So that was a a challenge uh, in itself. Then, of course, seeking to help 635 churches navigate the challenge of lockdown. And I think um, just a diversity of different contexts, a variety of opinions about COVID and how we should respond to the guidance and the law that the government is is giving. So uh, all of that, I think, has been a significant challenge. Um, I think it's been a mixture of feeling both exhausted, tired and drained, particularly by coping with the constant change, um, the constant change in regime. Um, and I think often frustrated hope, expecting that it was going to come to an end, but then suddenly finding we're back in lockdown or the, the lockdown is extended. So I think it's been difficult bearing with that sense of frustrated hope and having to keep extending um, the horizons uh, sort of out. So as we come towards this period of the year, year after 15 months, it'd be fair to say that as a family, we're exhausted. I think by what's been happening, we didn't really get a proper holiday last year. Um, Now I think we're relieved that it's beginning to open up. We're able to have people back in our home. We're looking forward to um, being um, away. As our own local church, whilst it's been a really tough time, God has been good to us. Um, Mm. During this time, we've actually seen new people come and join us who've moved into the area. We've seen a greater reach through our online streamed services. Mm. So certainly in the early days, many more people who were listening. We noticed particularly family members uh, of those who are in the church, um, spouses who weren't believers were listening into services when they'd never have come to church personally. Mm. And we saw at least one conversion during that period of time, which was wonderful in response to kind of online preaching. So in in fact, we've grown as a church during this time. And as we've begun to gather physically in the past few weeks, uh, actually it's been great seeing people who we hadn't had at church before who are are, are coming back to church. At the same time, it's been discouraging that I think we've lost touch with some of our fringe Mm. and the evangelistic opportunities of our regular mums and toddlers groups, um, uh, sort of an evangelistic meal with a message, which is a monthly event in in a local restaurant that we won. Uh, run has has lost its momentum. So there's been uh, sort of positives and negatives there. Mm. Um, We've actually found a new venue. So as a result of losing the church school hall, we had to look elsewhere. 
And um, in God's goodness, another local church, the congregational church in town, has allowed us to meet in their sort of uh, church hall on a Sunday afternoon, Super. which is a fantastic venue. It'll seat 150 people. It's right in the centre of town. It's a much better known location. And I think for us evangelistically, one of our challenges is in the morning in our community, basically everybody's involved in sports clubs. We've mm -hmm. got a church with lots of young families, but their friends will never come to church because basically they're already committed to other things. So we're hoping that an afternoon service in a, in a more prominent location will make it actually easier for people to be able to invite friends um, and families to come and join us for church. So uh, we're excited that that might have opened up for as a change that it would have been difficult to make because of some institutional resistance, mm. but actually could be really good um, for the gospel. So tell, me, guess, so tell me a little bit about, I mean, I can see that there's an opportunity evangelistically and for, for, for people who want to to sort of just inquire, to sort of have a look in. I mean, I was at Woking on Sunday. They baptised 11 people, um, which was uh, – and some of those had – one of them had actually tuned in in prison, given his life to Christ in prison, now out of prison, getting baptized. So that was quite quite a unique uh, set of circumstances. I, I'm, I'm balancing what you're saying, what we've experienced on the plus side to particularly, I think, in commission, some of our rural churches trying to do an online platform, finding that incredibly difficult. The technology, they're looking at yourself on a screen some people not wanting to do the online looking at themselves on a screen uh, what was your sort of what encouragement have you you found or given to the churches that are maybe in that camp I think you're absolutely right. I think for a lot of churches, particularly smaller churches and rural churches, those that didn't have on hand people with technical skills, mm. it was very difficult for them to generate uh, online online services and see the advantages of that. And of course, biblically, I believe that the physical gathering of church is the reality of what church should be. So even though we've seen some advantages from online church, I don't think that's a substitute for what mm. church should be. And we're, we're rediscovering the importance of being bodily in the presence of one another and being able to encourage one another in that way. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, should online replace physical service? I don't think across our churches anybody ever thought that online was a replacement for church. It yeah. was always a measure that would enable churches to be sustained in unique circumstances. And it provides a, a shop window and a way in for some people for whom coming physically to the building is not going to be their first point of entry. But it's, it's not ideal. Um, so I think with lots of smaller and more rural churches, one of the things we encourage them to do is actually join together with other local local churches that were able to provide an online service. So at one level, church almost needed to be in suspended animation for a period of time. And just a recognition that if you're not able to deliver church in that way, and it doesn't in fact build up and help God's people, then probably you're better off joining with others who are able to provide that. And then um, in your, your own immediate kind of smaller church to maintain the connections by personal phone calls, sort of Zoom meetings. Um, Zoom prayer meetings have been really helpful for people to be able to come together and see one another, and similarly for small groups. So even if you're not able to deliver the whole sort of service um, uh, online, there are ways of keeping in touch with one another online. And there have been wonderful stories of churches that have made huge efforts to help older people to be able to get used to the technology, supplying them with iPads and phones, showing them how to join up, people popping around 
around on a Sunday morning to connect them so they can participate. So I think there have been ways of supporting churches through that period, and it's enabled greater partnership between churches. Mm -hmm. And I think some larger churches have been pleased to welcome in others, and and not as it were to take them over, but to to welcome them as guests, to serve Mm -hmm. them during during this period of time. So it requires a right heart on the part of the larger church to recognise that it's serving a wider community of churches and and a a willingness on the part of the smaller church to be served. But in that way, gospel ministry is able to be sustained. But it's also certainly true that I think in this time, some smaller churches that were very fragile are now, as they're coming out of lockdown, recognising that probably the time has come for them to be closed. Mm. Often they've been churches with a, a smaller congregation of older people, often some very faithful leaders who've been sustaining the work for a a number of years. Um, And actually, they can see that the time is probably right now Mm -hmm. to join together with other churches to release resources to be better used for the sake of the kingdom. So even this morning in our prayer meeting as a staff, we were praying for three churches that have decided to close. I think it's really important to see that's not necessarily failure. I think in these instances, that's a recognition of serving the gospel in a better way Mm -hmm. um, rather than simply sustaining a a small meeting that has now become unviable. And I think that for some smaller churches, lockdown has probably helped them to make a decision that has been being put off. But if it's for the benefit of the gospel to enable the people to be better cared for and the resources to be better used, I think in a way that's a positive outcome. Very good. So so let's talk a little bit about coming out of. We, we, we're really hopeful, you and I be praying that this might be a, a moment in God for our nation in terms of the gospel and seeing the church in all its uh, beauty and uh, and its complexity and diversity. What are the what are some of the key lessons that you are saying to your leaders at this time as you, as they start to go back? There must be two or three common uh, encouragements that are flowing out of your heart to them to say, look, make sure you do this or don't do this. What what would those some of those key lessons be? Um, I think a number of things. I think for a lot of our church leaders during lockdown, because we're primarily word-centred churches, a word-centred ministry has endured through lockdown. Um, Mm -hmm. And actually, because that's been able to be sustained, I think that commitment to word ministry, preaching, teaching, proclamation, um, actually people have become more convinced of the value of that. And I think that's a really helpful thing that's been learnt during this time. But I think as churches regather, a a number of key things, I think we've been saying to people, do take it gradually. I think Mm -hmm. as we come out of lockdown, there's, there's a feeling that, you know, suddenly every all the restrictions are going to be removed and it will be back to normal. And I think my view is much more it'll be a much more gradual process of the church returning to normal. I think for multiple reasons, lots of pastors and church leaders are exhausted because they've pulled themselves out in serving their people and sustaining them through the period of this lockdown. They're not in a position to launch massive initiatives at this point. And I think therefore leaders have got to care for their own souls and their own spiritual lives at this time. And there's a danger that leaders will burn themselves out by trying to do too much too quickly. So the temptation is to leap back to everything. And we want to say, no, 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 take it slowly. Um, I, I think the reality is it will take a long period of time for the church to regather, for relationships to be re-established. Um, and my advice to churches has been, I don't expect that to happen until probably the equivalent of autumn half term. And I think there are a whole variety of reasons for that. For many churches, people won't 
be there week by week. People are taking holidays. At the moment, lots of young families are away on holiday. People are taking the chance to catch up with friends, relatives that they haven't seen for literally a year, a year and a half. Um, I think as soon as we hit September, some of the uh, people who don't have children will be taking advantage of holidays at the kind of cheaper season. So I think it's pretty unlikely you'll have your whole congregation gathered together uh, regularly on a Sunday until that sort of mid-autumn period. Mm -hmm. Um, And often at this time of year, we have that kind of reality of people being away. Um, But that makes it particularly difficult to, as it were, relaunch at this particular um, sort of time. So I think recognising that that is reality gives then the leaders the opportunity to think carefully about how they do regather, how they do restart ministries. I think there's a real challenge of restaffing ministries that are led by volunteers, where Mm -hmm. people have either... Um, They've stepped aside from serving. They're not used to serving anymore. Maybe for some, it's been a a time to give up a service that they hadn't thought of giving up, but they've now realised they want to lay that responsibility down. So I think regathering teams to serve, particularly where there are significant numbers of volunteers, that is going to take some time Mm -hmm. uh, for churches to be able to um, uh, sort of accomplish. So I think that patience... And not just patience with the ministry, but patience with the people as well. I I do think that there are a variety of different views that people have about COVID. So there are some who are sort of keen to get back straight away. COVID has been defeated. Let's just get on with it. There are others who are much, much more cautious. Maybe they're clinically extremely vulnerable. Uh, Maybe they're sort of um, uh, older. And I think in in church life, it's got to, we, we have to minister to all of those different sheep um, mm-hmm. and kind of draw them together. And I think rebuilding the unity of the congregation and enabling it to move at the pace of the body as a whole, rather than simply at the speed of what you might call the fastest or the slowest, mm-hmm. is actually a real challenge for leaders. And so, again, I think that will take a number of months to kind of reach an equilibrium. And it seems to me that um, church leaders, we've got to set the example of helping that to happen gradually, yeah. encouraging those who need to be encouraged, calming down those who are keen to rush ahead and don't really sort of understand why others might have more caution. Um, in some ways, I think it's it's our ministry is in, in Matthew terms to be those who are also looking for the lost sheep as we mm-hmm. regather our congregations. I think we as pastors and leaders have got to go out there and be contacting those who were on the fringe, those who were with us but have disappeared. I think they're going to, going to be need, need to be an awful lot of personal searching to draw people back into the life of the church um, community. I think another thing we've been saying to leaders is, is invest lots and lots of uh, energy, resources in rebuilding community. I think one of the key things about church is the community, the sharing of life with one another. And uh, we can easily fall into thinking the really important things are the services, the gathering, the singing, which I think are really important, Mm -hmm. but actually it's also massively significant to bring people together to enable them to relate with one another. So I think things like um, times before and after services, coffee, meals together, church gatherings, church social events are all just crucial to fostering that sense of community, that we are a body of people who love one another, who engage with one another, who share our lives with one another. Mm -hmm. And I think consolidating that, there's a real opportunity to do that. Um, And and then I think all of that is with a desire to being um, sort of missional and effective once the the church is regathered. Again, I think we've learned the huge significance of the witness of the community as a community. We need confidence in that. Um, uh, And so I, I think it's about regathering and rebuilding the church 
and then re-envisioning for the work of mission mm. and going out. But I'm, I'm not sure that's going to happen overnight. I think it's going to be a period of months um, as we do that. So again, in my own local church, we've actually just appointed a new pastor who's joining us in September. It's going to make a significant difference for us. He's going to have to find his feet. But I think we're thinking as elders, the launching of big new projects is really January at mm. this particular stage, that that is more realistic yeah. in terms of how we've gathered the congregation, envisioned them, and then in God's goodness, we hope they'll be ready to go. Um, so that's the type of timescale we're thinking about. I think that's really, I mean, it's it's a very encouraging, doing these different um, interviews, John, it's, it's interesting how many people uh, are saying that to us as leaders of churches, don't rush back. Uh, make sure yourself is replenished. You will. You've gone through a massive learning curve yourself. You've ex, you know expended a lot of energy in new ways, and now when you think about the gospel opportunities, don't go rushing back to go business as usual because. Um, you need to recuperate and and this is a longer term sort of process than a few weeks holiday and you you're back to normal can i ask you about the, the, the i mean i know you love the gospel we we know we're living in a post christian world um i think it was toppy who who ch chatted to him a few weeks ago he was saying i can't believe that god in his eternal sovereignty has led the church globally through this pandemic without wanting to create an opportunity for the church and for the gospel in these nations surely that there is something in the sovereignty of god getting a, a nation ready to receive uh the good news and 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 what would your encouragement in terms of to the church be in terms of the world is moving on it has it is changing it, it, it's got quite hostile to a lot of the, the the simple message of the gospel how are you contextualizing that or helping your leaders contextualize that to the particularly in the uk world that that is really changing so quickly that even some of the most ordinary things we would have taken for granted, like marriage, uh, sexuality, what have you, are now quite contentious. I think that's a great question. I think, first of all, just in terms of my reflections on this period of the lockdown as a whole, I would say I think I've probably heard more reports of people becoming Christians and converted during this period than actually at any period in the 10 years that I've been leader of the um, FIEC. Wow. So it seems to me to have been a significant period of conversion. And lots of churches are reporting now they're regathering baptisms, significant numbers of people being baptised. So I think actually we've got much to give thanks for, for how God has worked through this period in terms of conversion. And I think um, during the lockdown, people were faced with eternal issues. They were faced with life and death issues. Mm. Um, many of the things that they'd made their idols were stripped and taken away. And therefore, that did lead to, I think, a greater openness on the part of some to the gospel. We were seeing, for example, online Christianity and Alpha courses being attended by far more people than churches mm -hmm. have seen when they've been running those on a, on a regular basis. So I want to say, actually, I think God has been at work in the pandemic in our context, um, where churches are faithful to the gospel in a way that was, I, I think, um, more fruitful than perhaps 
um, uh, beforehand and we were, well, were harvesting some of the fruit of the seed that was sown. I don't quite know how it's going to work out after the pandemic. Um, I think what I see is that society is rapidly returning to its idols. People mm. are wanting to leave that time behind. I'm not sure that people, as we come out of the pandemic, have got the same fear of death that they had um, beforehand. So I, I'm sure there will be those who are deeply affected. There will be many people where there's great opportunity to draw alongside them. I think issues like loneliness, mental health, some of the community contacts that churches have developed where they've been providing food banks and care within the community through these times will provide ongoing gospel opportunities. But I think also in our post-Christian culture, there will be a very large number of people who to some extent return to business as usual mm -hmm. and go back to worshipping and following those same idols um, that they did um, beforehand. So I think that the, many of the challenges of evangelism in a post-Christian context are, are simply going to remain and we're mm -hmm. going to have to keep labouring um, against uh, that sort of background. We pray that God would move in great ways. Um, I think we need to wait and see how things pan out. We probably won't know the answer to that question of whether it was during the pandemic that God worked or whether the pandemic was preparation for something. Mm. At, at one level, I'm not sure we can quite know. Mm. And I would say that as, as Christians and Christian leaders, at one level, what the Bible calls us to do isn't dependent on whether we know or not. So at one level, we preach the word in season and out of season. Yeah. Um, there are times in which there is a, a kind of a remarkable harvest from exactly the same work and then there are times when you have to be involved in the same work and there's actually relatively little fruit from it so at one level from the perspective of leading churches um, I, I think we need to keep praying we need to keep hoping we need to keep encouraging but at, at the same time what we do doesn't massively change because we're called, called to keep on doing the same thing um, I do think that um, the kind of lockdown and lots of things that have been happening politically and nationally during this period have brought home to us yet again how we have become a, a sort of a marginalised minority in a post-Christian context. Um, that's flown through from everything with government and the way that it's regarded churches. On the one hand, in a sense, valuing the social services they provide at a local level, but not really treating them as essential to the country in the way that churches were, were closed down. I think in that sense, even in engaging with government, it's been very clear to us how um, insignificant the church is in political mm. thinking compared to, for example, the economy or football or, mm. or other activities. Um, and that's not surprising. That government perspective is that the vast majority of churches are elderly, small and dying. And mm. in reality, that is true of the vast majority of churches. It's not true of most evangelical churches, which are growing, which have got lots of young people, but they are, again, very much the minority of the overall picture of how the state perceives Christianity uh, in, in the UK. So I think our perception as evangelicals within our subculture is very different from the way that we're often perceived by those who are in government and are those who are looking at a, a kind of a national um, uh, sort of picture. Um, and I think that reflects one of the reasons why we have very little um, cultural um, significance. So, so even on issue... I mean, I, I love that point. I just want to... I'd love to just tease that little thought out a little bit more because... Yes, I, I would completely concur that evangelical churches across the board in the UK have bucked the trend in terms of decline. And, and there is uh, a, a groundswell of younger 
lives that are being saved, uh, some from Christian homes, some from outside Christian homes. We know that actually when you look at church history, you see that actually the movers and shakers of every generation have come from that sort of youth, teenagers into their 20s in some ways because they've got nothing to lose. They haven't become, you know, they haven't got a house and family and safety and they're all worried about what it might mean. They're going for it. How are we, and I'm talking here about the, the, the evangelicals right across the whole country, how should we be thinking and prioritizing our youth and our students how, how important is that, do you think, to you and to the whole of the church in the UK? I, mean, I think that's hugely important. All the statistics show that the vast majority of people who become believers become believers under the age of 21. So if you were to ask many churches, when did you become a Christian? Um, actually, the majority of people will say that they became a Christian under the age of 21, either having been brought up in Christian families or contacted through Christian friends through youth group ministries or in a student period. Now, that's not to de- that's not to decry the, the importance of older people and people of an older age becoming believers, and we rejoice at every new birth that there is. Mm. But there's no doubt that it seems to be the case that the majority of people who come to Christ do come to Christ at that younger uh, younger age, and therefore I think that's absolutely vital that we make the most of those opportunities to be reaching um, uh, kind of young people at strategic moments at life at which they seem to be just more open to be thinking about what. What life is about and, and what it means. And we shouldn't forget that actually Jesus' disciples himself, those who he called, were probably teenagers when they first followed him. So this is actually not a unique modern phenomena. Actually, that seemed to be true of the very closest disciples that Jesus called into the kingdom um, and to uh, join him. It seems that when people get onto the track road of career, family, children, it's almost as though their head's down and they think they've answered those questions of life and they're much less open and they've got much less uh, kind of time. So we certainly find evangelistically in our own community here, you can talk to neighbours and people you run into about the gospel. And in a classic British way, they maybe give you one opportunity to speak about the fact that you're a Christian, and then they manage to be politely able to avoid it on every other possible occasion afterwards. So I I think we just need to recognise that that is the reality of where we're at. In fact, uh, one of the features today is obviously many people don't live, grow up in, are converted in, serve in the same church for the whole of their lifetime. Actually, what's often happening is that people grow up in one church, they go away to university, they go to another church, they then go on to sort of live somewhere else with a job. Maybe they move somewhere when they've got kids and then they'll settle for 20 years. Um, So actually, life doesn't work quite in the way it did even 40, 50, 60, 60 years ago. And again, therefore, there are there are certain churches in certain locations that have a disproportionate number of people who are being converted in them, which is basically to do with context, who they're ministering amongst, the moment of opportunity that they have. And then often those believers are discipled and grown and they, they move on and they serve in other churches all around the country. So I think it's both vital that we seek to reach young people and seek to reach students because mm-hmm. that's a fruitful mission field. Um, but the churches that are able to do that recognise that in large measure it's to do with their context. It yeah. doesn't necessarily mean their ministry is better and that they're more effective. The things that they're doing that work well in that context might well not work in the in the other contexts. Uh, and I think they need 
need to have a vision for serving the church more widely, that where they see people being converted, the goal is to ultimately train them up and send them out Mm -hmm. as workers into the harvest field. Because the danger is that churches that are in those contexts can simply build themselves up and they become larger and larger and larger. And um, actually, those workers are needed for the harvest field elsewhere. So I think the interconnection of ministry between churches is vital if we're going to reach every community. And we've already mentioned the difficulties of rural areas. We could talk about the difficulty of urban deprived areas. Mm -hmm. If the churches that are seeing people who are converted aren't giving people a vision to go into those harder communities to take the gospel, they won't actually be reached. So I think churches that are seeing lots of conversions need to see themselves as mission-sending churches um, to reach communities that are elsewhere. And we we don't give a moment's thought to thinking about that to sending people overseas, but I think we need to think in that way about sending people in 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 the UK, yeah. and we therefore need need to have a vision for reaching every time of type of community, every kind of ethnicity, every kind of different class group. And sometimes the churches, because of its focus on youth and students, has inadvertently ended up with too much of a paradigm and focus on a particular kind of middle class educated community. Now, we rejoice that God has been at work in that community, but the reason for that is surely to then be able to carry the gospel more widely than that. And do you think, I, I mean, I 100% agree with you, and I, 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 I'm in a city now in London, in a good church, um, with lots and lots of young people, and it, it is just fascinating, that last point. If I talk about going to the Middle East or going to an Asian country where it's hard, you will have people respond to the call. If you talk about an area of London that is uh, predominantly one culture, um, what we would have typically called sort of working class, poorer, often um, very strong Muslim communities in certain areas, it's quite a different challenge to our younger people it's like i don't mind going overseas to but actually to move 10 miles in london it's all that would be really 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 hard and i think i think the other thing i've discovered is that the the problem with people like you and i is once we're pastors we can become very protective of our flock our reputation oh we've got a church of 100 now 120 we're we're successful and the thought of giving away some of the young uh, uh, mobile really people who shape the church who have got energy it feels painful to a pastor to think i don't want to give away some of my best people I think that's exactly right. I think on the first of those, um, I think some of that is to do with identity. If you're going overseas as a mission or a missionary to a very different culture, in a way you retain your own culture and you make the sort of step to engage with the culture that you're going to. But there is always a sense in which you don't quite belong to it and it doesn't shape your identity. I think if we think about going somewhere in Britain, we don't quite think in that same way. And you feel that in a much more real sense, you're sacrificing your identity by going into a, a, diff- a different community. And I think psychologically that has quite an impact on how people think about those two situations. So they might be able to go to the Middle East, but they still, as it were, retain their primary identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see themselves almost as an outsider coming to a different 
community. Whereas if you're going into a different situation in the UK that's very culturally different, there's much more pressure to assimilate to that culture. Um, and that has all sorts of implications for who are you? How do you bring up your children? How does it work in that context? And I think we need to recognise the reality of that as we help people um, think about, about that challenge. And finding your identity in Christ rather than all those other things is hugely important to mission in the UK, as well as in in, in mission going overseas. And I think you're completely right about the temptation of church leaders. I led a, a church that I planted in central Birmingham that was a classic student church. We began with about 25. We grew quite quickly to about 250. And at that point, your sense of self and success yeah. is bound up with people coming into the church, with people staying, with how large you are. We've all been to the pastor's conferences where basically the unanswer the, the question that's on everybody's lips is how, how big is your church? Um, and um, I remember, you know, we wanted every person to stay. And then there was a point after a, a certain number of years at which people began to leave because they were moving. And that was then really painful. And I think also in those sometimes those larger city contexts, church can sometimes feel like a revolving door in which you're constantly saying goodbye to people. And there's an emotional cost of seeing people come in, welcoming them, and then seeing them go um, elsewhere. Um, I think as I've moved in ministry, then been in a smaller town and been in FIEC, what's crucial is, begin, is to be to, to, to support not just the work of your own church, but the work of the kingdom more widely. And I, th I think the, the challenge for us all is we feel in, in innately insecure and we want our particular bit of the kingdom work to be successful. And I think it's reaching the point of saying it's not about me and my bit. It's actually about the bigger work of the kingdom and rejoicing in the success of others and sending people out to do kingdom work um, elsewhere. And I think for many of us as leaders, we need that bigger vision that frees us from the insecurity of only looking at the, the size of the particular church and, and location that, that we are. And I have to say, one of the joys for me, traveling around FIEC for the last 10 years, has been running into people who were at the church in Birmingham, who are now serving in churches all around the country in ways that I didn't expect. Um, I remember visiting um, a church somewhere, I won't say where it is to give it away, and one of the ladies in the church said to me, you remember that you baptised me when I was in Birmingham? I have to say, I honestly didn't remember <laughs> baptising her, but it was just wonderful to hear that she'd been converted, one of the students that had been in our church, and was now um, serving this church in a very, very different context. And, and I think it's it's rejoicing in that Definitely. and then having a bigger vision. I think often that comes with a little bit of age. Mm -hmm. I think as you get a little bit older, as you begin to realise, in a sense, how limited your own impact is, how short your own life is, it's then easier to have a concern for the wider kingdom as a whole rather yeah. than the success of your own personal ministry. Yeah, I, I, that is so helpful. That is so good. I, I, I mean, I personally just, I mean, I just resonate with everything you're saying because I think as you, I, I turned 60 a few weeks ago and thought to myself, actually, it's in the release that the greatest blessing has been. The assimilation when you have got a certain number on an alpha course or on a uh, just looking course, whatever it might be, or how many people have joined your church this year. Actually, those measurements 
are fairly limited. And when you actually think to have influenced a life, to have invested in into a leader, and that now that they are really flourishing, planting a church in Madrid or in Porto, I've had two involvements there. I think they're, they're the things that I look on my life and think, actually, that will carry on beyond just a, a, a quick snapshot of, of a group of people that met in a building for a certain number of years. I know that you carry this big heart and it's a wonderful heart, John. And I know how many people you bless in the in the wider family as well as the FIEC family. And lots of people would look to you for advice. And I'm aware that many of the leaders who will be listening to this in commission will be saying, John, where how much should I understand about the world and the challenges it's throwing at the church? You, you, you think of the Black Lives Matter, the diversity issue, you think about conversion therapy, gender reassignment. There's issues that you and I, when we were uh, in, our, in our students just became Christian, we were probably not having to think about at all. We, we assumed an awful lot about maleness and femaleness, marriage, etc. That world is gone. How... What do you say to leaders, maybe in their 40s, 50s, who are thinking, the world has gone mad, how much should I engage? And if I do engage, where can I look for help in, in this complex world? That's a great question and a huge question. I think that um, you're absolutely right. In a post-Christian world, we're being confronted with a whole new set of challenges. Although I have to say, I've been a Christian now better part of 34 years or thereabouts, at every stage of my Christian life, there were challenges that were new that were coming on the scene. It might have been the challenge of liberalism. It might have been the challenge of postmodernism. It might have been the challenge of new age spirituality. So I think in every generation, people have mm. said, here's the great new challenge that you've got to think about. And I think the challenge changes. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that this is a unique problem. I think in every generation, the church will face challenges from the world around. Um, and it's, it's godless rejection of, of, of the gospel will manifest in particular ways at a particular time. And I think over a lifetime of ministry, you almost certainly will have to deal with new challenges that will come up over that period, period of time. Um, I think at the same time as those new challenges, probably the thing that is more difficult for us as Christians, particularly in the UK, is we're just a smaller minority dealing with those challenges. So it's not so much the challenges, it's the fact that we feel very much out on a limb and we are out of step with the majority of the culture. And I think the big shift has been from recognising that we were kind of in the middle of the culture and quite a lot of unbelieving culture tended to at least affirm what we believed in moral terms, even though they rejected Christ. That's just no longer the situation. Um, and we feel, I think, more beleaguered um, as a result of that. And if we think that truth is determined by majority opinion, uh, rather than biblical truth, we will find ourselves very alienated in the current culture and we won't quite have an answer to what's going on. At the same time as there being these challenges, actually, I think because of the internet, there are vastly more resources available to us to help us to meet them. But I think therein lies a particular problem. And I think the problem for the pastors is to get caught up in all of these issues and think that they are the thing that you need to really give your time and your attention to. And there is simply so much going on, yeah. so much material you could read that can actually become a, 
a distraction mm. from the work of the gospel and from loving people. So I, I think it's hugely important for pastors to think about what do I need to know to minister well in my context? Mm. So I think th there needs to be a level at which we have a general appreciation of what's going on in the culture. But actually, we also need to think about who is the Lord placing me to reach? Yeah. And what are the particular things I need to focus on about the people that I'm seeking to reach? So you can't know everything about everybody. And there's a multiplicity of subcultures. So take something like Black Lives Matter. Mm. Um, I, I think that's a hugely important issue in the culture at the moment. Every pastor has got to have some understanding of what the Bible says about issues of race, equality, how the church is the place in which racial barriers are broken down, a recognition of the past and why sort of communities feel that they're oppressed by the current situation. But, but on the ground, it will be very different if you're in a Midlands town that has a, a very small ethnic population, or if you're ministering in London, where you've got a very significant ethnic population, in terms of how much you have to focus on and engage with that particular uh, sort of um, issue. So I, I think in many ways, it, it has to be driven contextually very good. by the missional need where you are. And the issues that people around you are engaging with, what most engages their hearts and grabs their attention? And then you've got to think through, how does the gospel apply to that? If I, if I can use another analogy, it's, it's kind of like, rather like um, think about the American context, those who engage with American speakers, someone like Tim Keller brilliantly contextualized the gospel for Manhattan and yeah. the issues of Manhattan at a particular moment in time. It's all too easy for everybody to think, I need to listen to that and basically use that exact same methodology where I am. But of course, I'm not in Manhattan. Mm. And what works in Manhattan doesn't necessarily work in Dallas or yeah. Los, yeah. Los Angeles. So the particular philosophical and cultural issues we give our attention to I think because we've all got limited time and energy, has mm -hmm. to focus on where we particularly um, uh, sort of are. And I think that's one of the challenges of discernment in Christian leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about, in a way, sacrificing things that we're interested in that would be um, intellectually stimulating for us but not a great deal of gospel benefit for who we're trying to, to reach. Um, and, and I would say we need to sort of, in a sense, serve the people. And that then dictates what the issues are that we give our best attention to and try to think through how does the Bible engage with those. Um, and uh, more generally than that, I think it, it, it's it's about constantly reading the Bible and hearing the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's too easy to think that the answer is simply to be found in cultural engagement and stuff. Actually, many of these issues are addressed biblically if you only look for it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I want to say we, we, we absolutely need to prioritise coming to the Bible and saying, what does God say about this? Um, yeah. And actually making sure that that's the perspective with which we're addressing these issues, um, rather than simply allowing the culture to not only set the agenda, but to provide the answer. Um, we that's... need to listen to the agenda and then come to the Bible and say, what's God's answer to that? That's brilliant. Absolutely superb answer. Really, really helpful, because I think many of our pastors feel overwhelmed and uh, but actually 
to to focus what is right in front of them and to ask God to look at his word and to be resourced to to reach that group, that that person, that neighbor, that Uber driver, whoever it is. I'm amazed traveling in London uh, how uh, Uber drivers tend to be very much on the front foot sharing their faith um, and and telling me that the Bible is corrupt and everything else. And so you've had to, I've had to do a lot more research into that challenge to the gospel, that apologetic, rather than thinking about all the other stuff I could actually be giving my time to. I'm aware our time's almost gone, John. So let me ask you this final question, just in terms of your own personal work with God. How do you keep yourself encouraged? Uh, bright, refreshed, and are there books or, or or people you go to on a regular basis that just help you keep your head above water and keep you loving Jesus and being optimistic about the future when we're living in such a cynical world and some of the statistics in churches are, are not encouraging? How, how do you do it? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. I guess from the beginning of having been converted when I was a student, having had the discipline of daily prayer and Bible study has been hugely mm. important for me. Um, I haven't always done that in the same way. It's not always been easy, and there have been times when you don't feel like it. But I've actually found that hugely helpful as a sustaining discipline. Um, and I think actually so much of the Bible is both realistic and optimistic. I'm mm. working through the Psalms at the moment, and it seems to me the Psalms primarily are speaking about how God is sovereign despite all the suffering in the world, his covenant purposes are going to be fulfilled. And basically, you live with a vision of a wonderful eschatological future, and that enables you to be sustained in the present. And I think time and again in the Bible, that is the perspective that, that the Bible brings. That is the basic biblical pattern. The kingdom has broken into this age. It won't be consummated until Jesus returns. And we're living in that tension kind of period. So in a sense, that is, I think, constantly reminding me of reality and also pointing to look to the faith of um, the future promise um, being um, fulfilled. Um, I have to, I, I, I'm quite happy to listen, I think, to Christian songs, music, hymns, um, actually, often when I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling depressed, I need to listen to things that lift my spirits yeah. and encourage me. So I've tended to add that in, actually, into my time, more of a time of personal worship. Um, obviously, church is hugely important in gathering together with God's uh, sort of people. And actually, I, I, again, missed during this lockdown period just those small conversations on a week-by-week -week basis with people. The, how are you doing? What's mm -hmm. happening? Um, those are just hugely important to spur you on and to um, keep you uh, going. Um, I, I tend, uh, because I'm naturally drawn to reading theological stuff, I have to discipline myself to read more more devotional stuff, which yeah. is good, good for my soul. So um, I go through phases of either listening to or reading uh, kind of sermons. So um, uh, quite often I default to Spurgeon, who always does my soul good, or Lloyd-Jones, who always challenges me. So often actually slightly older rather than immediately contemporary, um, mm. just because I think it gives a slightly different kind of basis for the Christian faith and takes me back to truths that have been held in common by the church um, uh, for generations. I'm privileged to work with a group of elders and a staff team um, here at FIEC, and we make it a key part of our work to pray for one another. All of our kind of elders meetings, we begin by sharing and praying personally. 
We try to do that as a staff team as well. We look at the word together. We've been working through Proverbs. That's been hugely helpful, a kind of an iron sharpening iron mm. um, uh, sort of thing. Um, and I belong to um, a little group of ministers, um, probably about six or seven of us, who meet for 24 hours every six months. Um, and I've been doing that for more than 20 years. And that's been a hugely important group of people who um, we can meet together. What we generally do is we go out for a walk, go out for a meal, pray for one another. One of us will preach a sermon to the others and we'll discuss a book that we've read. Um, And that's been a context in which to be open with people who are in ministry. Um, And during that time, we've seen ups and downs in churches, in marriages, in families with children. Um, And it's just a very safe environment in which to be able to be honest with um, one another. And I think in the Christian world, that ability to be honest mm. with other believers to get the help that you need is just hugely important. And that's been very significant for me in being sustained over a 20-year period. Well, John, that, that has been a massive, massive download. You made Andrew Wilson seem quite pedestrian after <laughs> listening to you today. Um I've so enjoyed hearing that. It's a, it's a gold mine, and I'm sure our people will love it. Um, I just want to thank you so much for all that you do on behalf of the wider Christian world. I think you're wonderful. Um, we want to help support and encourage you in all that you're doing. Play our part, as Terry once said, we're one small boat in God's mighty armada in the nation, and we want to put wind in each other's sails and help each other. So God bless you. May you have a really great holiday. And thank you for serving the Commission family today. Bless you. Thank you so much, guys. It's a privilege to be with you. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to the Adventure Together podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. To find out more about Commission, visit www.commission.global.